Um, I will be reading from Philippians 3, verses 1 to 11. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those um, mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in the regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal persecuted the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But whether were gains, but whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that is which, but which is from faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining the resurrection from the dead. Thanks, Amy. I asked Jesus to be Lord of my life when I was nine years old. It was summertime at Sunnybrae Bible Camp up in the Shushwap. Some of you might know it. And somewhere around the midweek mark, uh, the speaker preached this fire and brimstone message to a group of nine and ten-year-olds, and he asked that age-old classic question, if you die tonight, where will you go? What a question to ask a bunch of children that are away from their family, maybe homesick. They're just trying to figure out, do they have enough money at the canteen to buy another candy bar tomorrow? What a question. Now, I've always been the analytical sort, so I weighed out my options, and I decided not to take my chances with the devil. And so I, with my cabin counselor, prayed a prayer of repentance that night, and I asked Jesus to be Lord of my life. I'm quite certain I also asked him not to let me die that night. <laughs> now, this wasn't the life-changing event that we sometimes hear about, at least not for me. Uh, I didn't want to tell anyone. The adults at camp, they kept saying, you know, you should phone home, tell your parents, they're going to be so excited. I felt shy. I felt embarrassed. I did eventually call, I think it was probably the night before they came to pick me up, because it was safer on the phone than doing it face-to-face. I don't remember the reaction, I'm sure they were thrilled, but I remember being so afraid that someone was going to tell me I didn't deserve it. 
Once home, life continued as it does, but there was one additional change. For me, in my routines, I would pray often daily for years, uh, in desperation sometimes, depending on the day's events. I would pray, God, please, please forgive me again. God, please let me come to heaven. Don't send me to hell. It would be over 10 years before I would truly come to have faith in the saving grace of Jesus Christ and live in the peace and the joy and the freedom of that understanding. Today we continue in the book of Philippians. We're at the halfway mark and we're talking about threats to the faith. And we're not talking about the things that maybe make us doubt God, uh, even the things that make some of us walk away from God. Today we're talking about uh, one thing in particular that I think gets in the way of someone coming to faith in the first place. So let's jump in as we read in verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. In my Bible, it says finally. Some of yours, Amy's did, says further. And I think that's a better word to use here. It's one of those great connecting words. We've heard about the word therefore, how it connects us from something that's been said into a a conclusion or an action. Uh, This word further, it's like that, but it's actually saying we're going to build on what we just heard. Paul's saying, but wait, there's more. I've told you about A, B, and C, and now we're going to get X, Y, and Z. And so what does he say? He says, rejoice in the Lord. Well, that's not new. He's been saying that a lot. Uh, But he's been talking about the joy that he finds in the Lord. And now he's inviting us into that as well, to rejoice in the Lord. But I think it's what's next that is really key here in this verse. He says, it's no trouble for me to write the same things to you again. And it is a safeguard for you. I think that's interesting. You know, I had never used the word safeguard in my day-to-day language until this British guy showed up about a year ago and introduced me to all kinds of new English. But I really like what the word conveys in this sentence. Safeguard, it means defense, conservation, shield, protection. The word safeguard, it's commonly used uh, surrounding protective policies. It means to take active measures to prevent harm from coming to children or youth or young adults. So these are not reactive actions to a situation, but they are proactive measures to prevent a situation. So in this sense, Paul is saying that repeating himself in the basic tenets of faith, it's an important proactive measure that we can take to protect our faith and to prevent anything from interfering with the spread of that faith to others. And so now that he's established the need to safeguard our faith, he gets straight to identifying a threat. In verse 2, he says, Watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. I wish we had time to get into why he chooses those words in particular. We don't, but let's talk about who he's talking about The context of this letter, it's been some 30-odd years since Jesus' death and resurrection, and the gospel is spreading. And as it does, more and more people are becoming followers of Christ, both Jews and Gentiles. But for some Jews, more than others, it was hard to let go 
of all these rules that they had, and there was a lot of them. And so as they came together to form this Christian church, there was a group called the Judaizers, and they were preaching that for a Gentile, for a non-Jew to truly be saved, they not only had to believe in Jesus' death and resurrection as atonement for their sin, but they also had to submit themselves to what had been up until now an integral sign of being in covenant with God. They had to be circumcised. Now, we live in an upsell culture. You cannot go to a store without the cashier trying to sell you something else as you check out with your purchases. And one of the places where this has irritated me the most is with our banks. Uh, Brad and I, we were clients, longtime clients, of one of Canada's big three banks. I won't name it. Uh, but we had been with them for a long time. And when we moved to Vancouver Island, we were purchasing a house. And so we found a mortgage rate that was better than the one our bank could offer with a different lender. And our bank refused to match it. So it's fine. We bought our house. We went with the other lender. We had our lower rate. But you know, you get those marketing calls from your bank. And they would call year after year. And they had the gall to tell me, ma'am, if you had just three products with our bank, you would qualify for a no-fee checking account. If you, you have the credit card, you have the credit line. If you had your mortgage with us, you would qualify for a no-fee checking account. And I said, I would love to have my mortgage with you. You just need to match this rate. And they would always say no. And we did this for quite a few years until we finally got so fed up with it, we pulled everything out of that bank, moved over to another, and guess what? We got our no-fee checking account. I see what the Judaizers were doing as similar to my old bank. They were preaching add-ons to faith. It didn't matter that I had already bought into the bank with all my money. They weren't going to give me anything for free unless, unless I had my mortgage with them too. In the same way, the sect of Jewish Christians, they were preaching a salvation that wasn't free, but was only given when other rules were followed as well. So Paul is offering up this warning, watch out for these people that are preaching an add-on gospel. And then he swiftly reminds the Philippians who they are and what they are safeguarding in verse 3. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. There's two words in here that I want to focus on to make sure that we really understand what Paul is saying here. The first one is flesh at the end of this verse, and then the second one is circumcision. So flesh really in this, con in this context, and as it, it gets referred to at times, it refers to human effort, and it's essentially man without God. Flesh sums up what a person is apart from the grace of Christ. And Paul refers to this again in Galatians when he says, For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They're in conflict with each other. So that's flesh. And then circumcision. Paul says, we are the circumcision. Well, circumcision was introduced in Genesis chapter 17. When God says to Abraham, I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. 
Now, I don't think anybody here needs me to explain the physical act of circumcision, but from a spiritual viewpoint, circumcision was introduced into the culture to represent a covenant between God and Abraham, and that could then be passed on down to Abraham's descendants. It was an eternal promise of a spiritual relationship with God. So Paul is saying, we are the circumcision. Now, he's not saying that the physical act of circumcision was irrelevant or even unnecessary all of these years. It's not the difference between a true and a false circumcision, but the only circumcision that there ever was. The everlasting covenant or promise of a spiritual relationship with God. So verse 3 then, it's really this reminder to the Philippians. Paul is saying, we are the circumcision. We who have the Holy Spirit within us, who boast in Christ Jesus' life and death and resurrection, who put no confidence or faith in our works because they have nothing to do with our grace. These three things evidence that we are the ongoing covenant with God. So the Philippians have been given a reminder of who they are, a people in covenant with God. They rejoice only in him, and they've been warned to remind themselves of this for their own safety, but also to beware of anyone who would tell them otherwise. So having established this foundation, now Paul pulls back the curtain on his own life, and, uh, and he shares some of his history, I think, to really emphasize for the Philippians how, how important this is. In verse 4, he says, Though I myself have reasons for such confidence, if anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Well, we've just heard that as people in covenant with God, we put no confidence in flesh. Remember, confidence in the flesh is confidence in anything apart from the grace of God. And Paul goes on to list seven things that at one time gave him great confidence. The first four he had no control over. He was born into them the last three he chose. So he says, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. Paul had the right lineage. He was ushered into an everlasting covenant with God just by his birth and by the obedience of his Jewish parents. But the things he chose in regard to the law, I was a Pharisee. The Pharisees are the ones out of everyone who knew the law inside and out. The, they were in the scriptures every day. They were memorizing it. They were the revered religious leaders of their time. And Paul was one of them. He says he zealously persecuted the church. We know that from his history. He tells the Galatians that he persecuted the church before he had his encounter with, the Christ, with Christ. He was probably responsible for the deaths of many Christians. But as for righteousness based on the law, Paul says he was faultless. Now, righteousness is one of these great Christianese words that we throw around. That means to be considered, um, well, it means being justified or considered right in God's eyes. Another way of defining it would be to say to be rightly related to God or in right relationship with him. The Jewish people, they had a lot of laws. I said that before. There were 613 of them, I think. And following these laws helps them maintain their righteousness or their rightness with God. 
Of course, it was impossible. You're always going to break one of these rules. And so then they had sacrifices that they would make to atone for those transgressions. But Paul is saying, I faultlessly followed the law, and I gained my righteousness so far as the law was concerned. So I wonder, what would this list of righteous qualifiers sound like today? You know, I shared with you at at the start about my own journey with faith, but what made me feel like I didn't deserve it or that it might get taken away from me? What was being consciously or maybe even subconsciously taught that my sponge-like little mind was absorbing? Paul talks about his lineage, and I think we've done this sometimes in the church. Maybe not so much now in 2024, but I could tell you 35 years ago when I was growing up in the church, this was a thing. There was higher honor if your family was involved in church leadership. My dad was at times an elder, he was at times a deacon, and I do not remember a time where he wasn't leading music in the church. I came from good stock. Of course, maybe your status rose a little if your mother was the church organist. My church, we were rebels. We didn't have an organ. We had guitars. Uh, But my mom was a church secretary, so I had that going for me. Uh, Right? What else were we pious about, like the Pharisees? Many of you probably remember when your righteousness was directly connected to what you wore to church. A lot of us, our righteousness is in the back of our closet right now. Mine is right next to my husband's. We pull it out for weddings and funerals. I'm talking about suits and dresses, if you're wondering. Um, Was anybody here a part of the Awana Club? Anybody? Yeah, a few hands. Anybody know Awana? Awana was this fantastic Christian club for kids uh, that that we had growing up. And kids would come, they would play games and sing songs, but the most important part was you memorize scripture. And the more scripture you memorize, the more badges and jewels you earned to pin on your uniform. And if you had all the badges and jewels, oh my goodness, you were righteous. You guys, I had all those things. I had the lineage. I had the outward piety. And I had all the badges and jewels but I had no faith. I believed, to a certain degree, that the words I was memorizing, these verses I was memorizing, that they were true, but the messaging I was receiving was keeping me from having faith that my belief was enough. So Paul is saying, watch out for this narrative. It threatens yours and others' faith. Be reminded, we are the circumcision meaning we have an eternal covenant with God through his son, Jesus Christ. We serve God by his spirit, the Holy Spirit that he gives to each of us, and we follow the leading of his spirit, not the letter of the law. And we boast in Christ Jesus alone, meaning we don't boast in our own personal qualifications, but rather we boast despite our unacceptable qualifications because... We have been made acceptable acceptable through Jesus. Isn't that good news? Right? So then we get to the last few verses where Paul says, that was the old me. That's where my confidence was, but I have let it all go. Verse 7, he says, but whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss 
compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things, I consider them rubbish, that I may gain Christ. Paul's saying all of those outward examples, and even the ones he was born into, those things that he claimed for his righteousness, they're worthless compared to the surpassing worth the inestimable value of knowing Christ Jesus as Lord. And then the last three verses, they really speak to what Simon has actually mentioned the last two weeks. So thank you for setting me up to bring this home. Um, he talked about past justification and present ongoing sanctification and future glorification. And these three verses are Paul's example of that. Verse 9 References Paul's past justification. It says, To be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. Justification is God's act of declaring us not guilty. Paul was justified in the eyes of God. He was made right when he acknowledged Christ Jesus as his Lord and rejected all things of the flesh. He found true faith in Christ. And through that faith, he gained righteousness. So that's Paul's past justification. Verse 10 references his ongoing present sanctification. He says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Sanctification is the process of becoming more and more like Christ. And Paul says here, I want to know Christ. To know someone, that takes time. It takes effort. It takes honesty, transparency, vulnerability. Paul says, I continue to want that. And it's through that deep relationship with Christ that he continues to be sanctified meaning he becomes more and more holy as he deepens his relationship with Christ, becoming more and more like him every day. And finally, verse 11 speaks to the future glorification. He says, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Paul is going to die one day. He might not know when, it could be tomorrow in prison, a few years later when he's executed. He knows he will die, but he also knows that when he does, he will spend eternity in the presence of his Lord and Savior. That is his future glorification. So Paul is telling us all the things that we thought we needed to do to earn our righteousness, we must count them as loss because our righteousness only comes from our faith. In fact, you might argue that our righteousness depends on our faith. Uh, Valentine's Day was not too long ago, and I recently, uh, Facebook, it pops up with those memories, right? If you posted something on a certain day, and so uh, this memory popped up, and it was a picture of a Valentine's card that one of my sons had made me 10 years ago. He was seven years old, and it said, as only a seven-year-old can articulate, Mom, it's about 100% loving you and 100% not hating you. 
He hasn't changed much. Church, our righteousness is about 100% justification through faith and 100% not justification through our works. It is clear from Paul's writings in the New Testament that he is passionate on this subject. In no less than four of his letters, he talks about it at great length. And I think it was so important because he was having to shift a culture out of finding their righteousness by the law, by the things that they did. But I just love the way he says it in Romans 3, verse 21. He says, But now a righteousness from God apart from law has been made known. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Let me be clear. I am not saying that we won't or even shouldn't do good works. Don't mistake today's message as not ever having to take the hard but incredibly rewarding path of doing the things that Jesus is asking of you. Remember, Paul is building on what he's taught us previously. In Philippians 2, he said that our attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. So let me just tell you quickly what Jesus had to say about righteousness. In Matthew 5, Jesus says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Jesus, in his very first public sermon, says, You are blessed, you are to be commended if you hunger and thirst for righteousness. And those who seek this righteousness will be filled. With what? Well, I think this is what it's saying right here in Philippians 3. Those in covenant with God are now filled with the Holy Spirit by which we begin to serve or worship God, becoming more like him. Friends, we can never mix up the order. We cannot put on righteousness through our good works and hope to fool God into thinking we are in right relation with him. We do not achieve righteousness through moral conformity. He doesn't recognize it. Instead, we must first put our faith in the redeeming power of Christ Jesus and thereby receiving our righteousness. Then our moral conformity will follow our ongoing sanctification by the power of the Holy Spirit as we take on the attitude and behaviors of Christ That is where faith becomes threatened. As soon as we begin counting those things we do, feeding the hungry, housing the homeless, clothing the naked, loving Duncan, if we begin counting those things as righteousness and worse, telling others that they must do these things on top of having faith in Jesus in order to really be saved, they too will become worthless. They will be rubbish when they're being used as atonement for our sin. Are you here today feeling like you have to clean yourself up first before approaching God in faith? 
Do you feel like you need to make yourself more presentable, whether inwardly or outwardly, before he will receive you? Do you believe that you need to do more than just have faith in order to gain salvation? If that is you, I want to tell you it's not true. Today, by faith alone, you too can receive righteousness in the eyes of God, and I hope you will. There's any number of people that would love to pray with you afterwards, myself included. And I ask you, the champions of faith of New Life Church, you who have been Christians for ages, are you preaching add-ons to the gospel that are threatening someone else's faith? Remember who you are. We are the covenant, the circumcision. We worship by the Spirit, and we boast only in the work of Christ Jesus, putting no confidence or value in our own flesh. Protect that, not just for yourselves, but for those that are watching you. Let's pray. God, we thank you. Lord, there are no words. We know we don't deserve this grace that you have given so freely, and yet you still give it. And so, God, I just pray this morning that we would be reminded of what we have received, uh, Lord, that we would not muddy the waters for anyone else but that we would help open doors and usher people through into your kingdom. God, we thank you for your word and for the words of your servant, Paul. Amen.